The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, all you magical people out there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I'm your host, Dustin McGinnis. I'm a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. So today we are going to be covering Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapter 10, Mayhem at the Ministry. After the mayhem of the last chapter, the group is excited to return back to the borough. As they arrive, Mrs. Weasley is extremely relieved. She's holding a wrapped up copy of that morning's Daily Prophet. The paper covered the horrors of the event and even had a picture of the dark mark on the front page. She was so worried about her family because she's not with them and this left her to her negative thoughts. This anxiety is very universal for parents to think the worst. Why does anxiety such as this lead to negativity? I think that's a really good question for a lot of people, especially those in a parental role, our job is to take care of our children, right? Our job is to protect those that we love, whether we're a parent to human beings or a pet parent or a leader of some kind. In a lot of ways, by being able to think about things that can go wrong, for a lot of people, the belief is that we might be able to better prepare or protect people from this. I don't necessarily view it as negativity or negative thoughts. I look at it as catastrophizing thoughts, right? Thoughts that are catastrophic in nature. And for many people, it's a coping mechanism. And that's especially true for trauma survivors like Molly. Molly and Arthur have been through the first war. They've lost a lot of people, and that includes James and Lily Potter. And seeing how terrible things can be when the dark mark is present, there's an understandable, not just fear, but terror, right, about losing loved ones. And so it's understandable that when triggered by a reminder of the dark mark, somebody like Molly, somebody with her history would automatically assume that something might have happened to her loved ones. I imagine that many survivors of 9-11, if something happens in the vicinity where their loved ones live or work, then might automatically assume that something might have happened to their loved ones. I actually think it's quite a common response. I don't view it as a negative. Again, you know, it, it might be a catastrophizing one, but it's also one that's pretty consistent with Molly's trauma history. Yeah, absolutely. 
you read about how terrified all the witches and wizards there were this brought back some serious traumatic thoughts. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense. And as a parent, especially as a parent of a child who's about to start driving, I get those thoughts myself. And the other day, our son was out with a friend and his friend has a license. You know, he just got his license and I got that thought, man. I was like, man, driving is so dangerous and so serious. I hope they're safe. And I say, please be safe. It's just a parental thing. Another interesting thing that happened right at the beginning of this chapter is, you know, she rushes towards her family. She briefly hugs Mr. Weasley and then immediately seizes onto Fred and George in a huge hug. Ultimately, she feels so guilty because she had yelled at them before they left for the game. All she could think about was what if they had been killed and the last encounter they had together was her yelling at them. My mom always used to tell us not to leave the house or let someone leave without telling them that we love them. You really never know what can happen. So I kind of get where she's coming from here. Can you explain what Mrs. Weasley is experiencing here and why the things we fight and argue about are ultimately less important than reminding our loved ones how much they're cared for? I think this is something I imagine most people out here have experienced, right, in terms of when something happens, when we're having an argument with somebody, when we are feeling angry at somebody or maybe hurt by someone, we might say or do something that might be out of character or might not be the best way to communicate to our loved ones how we feel. And in that moment when we're hurt and angry, and usually both, right, when we're angry, it's typically out of hurt we might not be able to see the big picture. We might not be able to remember right there in that moment how much this person means to us. And therefore, if something was to happen to that person, we would <clears throat> understandably be mortified that that person might've died without knowing how much we care for them or how much we love them. The truth is, even if the last thing we said to somebody was maybe not the kindest one, it's about the overall interactions. In Molly's case here, for example, Molly is a strict, but also a very loving and caring mom. I think for many of us, we might have not the easiest relationships with our parents, or if you're a parent with their children, sometimes they're really strained and painful. But I think that if we're able to tell our loved ones how we feel, in terms of loving them, even when things are hard, then even if something drastically happens to our loved ones, I imagine at one point or another, that loved one would still know how we feel. And so I think it's not about the last thing we said. I think it's about, in general, trying to express to our loved ones how much we love them and how much we care. Yeah, it's important. In this chapter, we're introduced to the unscrupulous Daily Prophet journalist, Rita Skeeter. And I'm just so happy I finally had the opportunity to say the word unscrupulous. <laughs> I just think it sounds great. Rita Skeeter is the typical journalistic fear monger. She writes about topics that incite fear and anger and exaggerates and embellishes the details because, much like our society, it's what sells. Why? Typically, when people are angry or scared, they want to get more information so that they know how to prepare themselves. When we're angry or scared or both, 
we want to find ways to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones. And that's why sensationalism sells. That's why news sell. When we're afraid, we will keep coming back for more because we might believe that so long as we learn everything we can learn, we will be safe. And unfortunately, a lot of times the information might be exaggerated or as we're seeing here with the Daily Prophet completely fabricated and untrue. I think that unfortunately, a lot of newspapers, certainly in the past, there are some newspapers now and certainly have over the past decade that make a profit by making people scared and angry, by taking things out of context, blowing them out of proportion, and by inciting these emotions in individuals, making a profit essentially on people's suffering. Rita's article ridicules the Ministry of Magic's response to the danger and chaos that happened at the World Cup, and she anonymously quotes Mr. Weasley. She doesn't really mention his name, but people who know him and people who might have seen him, and he definitely knows that it was him that she was quoting. This, of course, means that the ministry must perform damage control and respond to these claims. Mr. Weasley is about to rush to the ministry to give his side of the story when Percy, trying to appear important like he does says he will join his father he adds that Cornelius Fudge will need all hands on deck and that he can give him a copy of his report on standardizing cauldron's thickness let's be honest Percy's report is worthless in general but in lieu of the current situation it's beyond useless to even bring up why does self-importance like this sometimes cloud a person's reason I wouldn't necessarily say his report is worthless. I imagine there's a reason for this. Like maybe it burns people less. Yeah. But, well, I think but, it's, I mean, they mentioned that it leaks because it's thin or whatever. Yeah. It, it rises less than 3% a year or something like that. I think it's busy work to keep him out of Cornelius Budge's hair. <laughs> Probably. And, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say his report is worthless. It sounds like it has merit to me anyway. It sounds like it has merit, but you're right. I think that, it is not the most pressing issue at this time for Percy, who has, what, seven siblings or six siblings. I think that he often feels overlooked. And the one thing he always had going for him that was his sense of identity was being a perfect student, becoming a prefect, having the perfect marks and his owls and his newts, right? Like the, the big exams. But now that he's out of school, I think he lost that sense of identity. And I think you sometimes see that with, let's say, people who were like, let's say, jocks, you know, or cheerleaders or president of their school, trying to find that status again, after they leave school and, and sometimes struggling, I think that for some people leaving a particular organization, like a school, can leave them with this unfinished sense of identity, if you will, that they're then continuously trying to find. The thing is, for every person out there, you're not who you were in school. You're not the school you went to. You are the same person anywhere you are, right? Regardless of the context, which means that if you were somebody that was the president of your school or the prefect of your school, whether you went to a public school or an Ivy League school, you are still the same person, meaning a person that 
are and always have been worthy of love and belonging and support and acknowledgement. And I think for Percy, his biggest desire perhaps is to be seen. And I think that with all the siblings that he has, he probably feels quite invisible. And I think in the ministry, because he's new, he probably feels quite invisible. And I think he's trying to make himself be seen and to feel important in any way he can, but he, I think, doesn't quite know how to advocate for himself, or maybe he doesn't quite know that he can advocate for himself. Yeah, I guess I didn't mean any offense, (laughs) and I feel a little bad for Percy, but he is kind of pompous in a way, I guess. He'll forgive you. Yeah, (laughs) so Harry sent Hedwig with a letter to Sirius about his scar hurting. And this was days ago. It was chapters ago for us, but it was days ago for him. And he's really anxious about not hearing back yet. It's much like being really vulnerable with someone and anxiously awaiting their response, but not getting it. And, you know, the minutes are ticking by and it feels like hours each one. Can you talk about anticipatory anxiety as we wait for news? Absolutely. None of us are strangers to anticipatory anxiety. Anticipatory anxiety happens when we might be anticipating a particular situation, but we might be anxious before it happens. In all the years that I've been a psychologist, what I've learned and what I've seen professionally and also personally is that anticipatory anxiety tends to be worse than the actual event. So in 99.999% of cases, anticipatory anxiety feels and is experienced as worse than when the event actually happens, even in the rare circumstance where the event is what we thought it would be, right? So even if we think the worst case scenario will happen, in many cases, it might be worse in anticipatory stages where we think, what if this person rejects me? What if this person says something terrible to me or bullies me or puts me down? When it happens, of course it hurts, but we tend to suffer more in anticipatory stages than during the actual event. When we're, let's say, interviewing for a job, for instance, or as you mentioned, in vulnerable times when we have, let's say, reached out or maybe texted somebody that we love them or miss them, and maybe that person hadn't gotten back for several hours, we might have all kinds of thoughts going through our minds that maybe that person is mad at us or maybe they never want to speak to us again. And I think the best way we can manage anticipatory anxiety is by staying grounded, by trying to stay in the present moment, by noticing that right now we don't actually know what the outcome will be. So all we know is that right now that scary outcome has not happened. We can breathe. We can notice where in our body we're holding anxiety. We can engage as many of our sensory properties as we can. So if you're somebody that is able to see, maybe looking around to see what you can see in your room, if you're able to hear, then maybe listening to any sound you can hear. If you have the use of your hands, maybe seeing what you can touch with your hands, you know, et cetera. And I think the more we can use our sensory properties to stay in the present moment, the less overwhelming that anticipatory response will be. And that's just it too, is being a bystander for someone who's spiraling in these situations. It's just best to try to help them ground. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't ever spiral. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of Harry's scar, it 
burned him three days before the dark mark appeared and he doesn't see this as a coincidence how does this relate to what happens in trauma survivors for many trauma survivors we might start associating certain situations with danger and we might start having certain trigger reactions and sometimes when we tell people about it people might try to maybe reassure us, but sometimes it comes across as invalidating, right? People might say, no, it's not dangerous and it's no big deal. I think for a lot of people who carry that kind of invisible scar or uh, like hairy visible scar, I think sometimes our internal magic or internal spidey senses, if you will, might be telling us not even necessarily that there's danger, but that we need support. And I think a lot of times when we experience that re-triggering of trauma, especially in the area where it occurred, right? Like physically in the area, like in location, but also in the area of our body. So when somebody was hit, the area where they were hit might hurt. If somebody was assaulted, sometimes area or areas where they were assaulted might, might hurt. So for Harry, it's his scar. That's where he received his injury. But sometimes other places might start hurting too, like our chest and stomach. That's why a lot of people might have stomach aches and headaches sometimes as a way of responding to stress and trauma. And so I think that a lot of times when we feel those sensations on the inside, it's our body trying to tell us that we need safety and support, but not necessarily to be talked out of how we feel, which is, I think, what some well-intentioned people might sometimes try to do. I found it interesting because when you were explaining that, I couldn't help but think about someone who had lost a limb, a leg or an arm or something like that, feeling their foot or something, pain in their foot, but they don't really have a foot. It's, it's just really interesting that these kind of trauma things can inspire something. Absolutely. And phantom limb is real, where people might be missing an arm or a leg and they might feel really tense or tender or itchy there, or their muscle might feel really stiff. And this is where Dr. Ramachandran, who's a neuroscientist from UCSD, from University of California in San Diego, invented a mirror technique where somebody would place a mirror in the place where the limb used to be and have the person watch the other limb in that mirror and stretch out the existing limb or have somebody massage the existing limb or relax the existing limb. And it does provide a relief of a response to the phantom limb because those muscles did need to release some of that tension. And that seems to be the way to do it. Man, that's so interesting. You did mention just a little bit ago that sometimes people try to reassure or distract survivors. What I see is also there are some who are more validating and understanding. In the case of this chapter, Ron tries to reassure and distract Harry while Hermione validates him and shows Harry understanding. Why doesn't reassurance usually help someone who is struggling? And does distractions like Quidditch or TV help in situations like this? I think reassurance doesn't tend to help because trauma survivors have a very different perspective on what happened in terms of they know, no, bad things like this can't happen. They already did, so they can happen again. 
And so reassurance such as, oh, it doesn't mean anything, nothing bad will happen, tend to make the trauma survivor actually feel worse and more misunderstood and more alone. But in regard to supportive understanding statements where like Hermione, for example, was being understanding and even told Ron that he was being essentially invalidating. So telling a trauma survivor a statement such as, I get it. Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. Let's find some safe ways of dealing with this. What are some ways we can deal with this together, for example, or what are the safest ways we can get through this? Now, in regard to distraction, the answer is it depends. And it depends on what the distraction is used for. I think that if we tell ourselves, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to feel it. I just want to watch a movie or go play Quidditch or you know whatever. It might make us feel temporarily better. But in the long term, like when we stop the particular activity, we might feel worse. Versus when we tell ourselves, I am really overwhelmed. I'm going to watch a few episodes of the show or play a few rounds of Quidditch so that I can take my time, recharge, and then come back to facing this issue, we actually tend to feel better. It's not so much the activity, it's the intention behind the activity that tends to be helpful. If we engage in that activity to run away, to literally distract, then it tends to backfire. Versus if we engage in the activity by telling ourselves, I'm doing this to recharge so that I can come back and have more energy to face this problem, we tend to experience exactly that. Need a recharge. I love it. It's wonderful. The house elf Winky is brought up again in Hermione's presence, and we know what happened last time. And Hermione, again, immediately stands up for her. Percy says, and I quote, a high-ranking ministry official like Mr. Crouch deserves unswerving obedience from his servants. And Hermione responds immediately, slaves you mean. Let's be honest here. It's not like Winky is Mr. Crouch's assistant. She's not paid or anything. She is a slave. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I'm glad that you brought this up. And I think this book has more of an importance in terms of focusing on equality. Winky was, as far as I understand, born into this, right? She didn't apply for a job in which she gets paid. She doesn't get paid. She had never gotten paid until later, I think Hogwarts might pay elves a minimum wage or, you know, if that. But when she's working for Mr. Crouch, she doesn't get paid. She gets abused. She gets shamed. And it's not like she really ever had choices as to whether or not she wants to work there and whether or not she's treated humanely and, you know, in a kind way. It's quite awful of Percy to say that. It's all about the rank and status. So for somebody like Mr. Crouch, he needs unswerving, right? Is that what he said? Unswerving obedience from his servants. Mm -hmm. Just to have that perspective makes it seem like anybody who is a worker for somebody, which Winky was not a worker. She was a slave, given the conditions she lived under and given that she wasn't getting paid for her work. But even if somebody was paid for, let's say, being an assistant, they still deserve humanity and respect. They don't deserve the kind of treatment Winky went through. And I'm so glad to see that Hermione jumped to her defense. And I wish that Ron and Arthur and Molly would have as well. Yeah. 
essentially the way that it's set up in this magical universe is these house elves are all brought up slaves initially i guess unless they're born in a freedom like at somewhere like hogwarts it's really a, a very sad situation they talk about what the the kids need for school and they need dress robes so Mrs. Weasley gets Ron this lace dress robes <laughs> and it's very frilly and he does not want to wear it. He thinks it's a dress and Harry gets some dress robes that are actually awesome. They look just like his regular robes. So there's no real transformation there, but the situation got me thinking about how adults don't understand that some things they do embarrass kids. Kids think they need to still fit and belong and Opposite of that, kids don't understand that adults doing something like this and having a kid respond in the way that Ron did, they're kind of being shamed about not having enough money to provide them with something better. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm glad that we're talking about this. You know, for kids and especially adolescents, right, like Ron and Harry, who are 14 at this point, belonging, fitting in, it's everything. And especially since they're not just going to school, they're living at school. This is boarding school. They are there for nine months, Mm -hmm. 10 months out of the year. It's not just that it's important for their social status, it's survival. And being bullied for the way that kids dress unfortunately puts them on the outside of the social circle. And that sense of belonging is really crucial for our well-being, as crucial as food, water, and shelter. And so I think a lot of times adults, by the time they become adults and have more stability, adults might forget how vital that sense of belonging is and tell kids, well, just don't worry about what anyone says. It doesn't matter, right? Like, While it's important for people to preserve their unique sense of self, it's also important for kids to feel like they belong. And I think many adults really do not fully understand how embarrassed their kids might be if they don't feel like they fit in. It is also understandable that Molly and Arthur are both broke, and so they can't afford nicer robes. A part of me still wonders why she didn't magic some of the changes right to the robes because there's so many transfiguration charms I would think that someone who is such an advanced and experienced witch as Molly could have probably changed maybe the color or some of the lacing on the robes to make them a little bit more fashionable for Ron's era because we know that the robes have been in the family for generations right so they're (laughs) out of style at this point if they couldn't afford something, I imagine Molly might have been able to transfigure them. So that's a really um, good point. Yeah. I do think that Ron's concern is valid. I also do think that a lot of kids truly might not understand that adults do get very ashamed of not being able to afford certain things and might genuinely want to make their kids happy and give their kids what the kids want including material things, but might not always be able to afford it, but sometimes might be too ashamed to say that they can't. Yeah. In all honesty, I really feel for Ron here. I have a ton of very embarrassing stories (laughs) that my mom put me through. I will share one. She got me 
and my brother's permed. I totally feel for Ron here because kids made fun of me like ruthlessly. They said I look like a girl. They said I look like a little orphan Annie. You know, it was it was pretty traumatizing. And man. so for people who don't know what <laughs> permed means, it means that Dustin and his brother got their hair in curls, which there's nothing wrong with boys looking like girls or vice versa. And unfortunately, in some situations, especially back when you were growing up, I imagine that binary gender separation, unfortunately, was probably quite prevalent. Oh, right? yeah. Like I, I would assume it still is now. I think in some there, schools there's... more than others, especially in California, for instance, there are more schools that are accepting of people's self-expression and people being open about their gender identity all across the gender spectrum yeah but sometimes kids can be really mean for sure <laughs> so i get it i feel for you ron but ultimately i mean that sums up this chapter really so you know we're gonna go ahead and end it here thanks so much for listening and again my name is dustin mcginnis you can find me on twitter at the valiant geek and I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. For all of our listeners out there, we are sending out free signed copies of Dr. Scarlett's book, Harry Potter Therapy, an unauthorized self-help book from the restricted section. To enter the drawing, all you have to do is tweet about this podcast with the hashtag Harry Potter Therapy. We will choose one lucky listener every month to receive their free copy. Unfortunately, due to high postage costs, international listeners will not be eligible for this promotion. Stay kind out there, everybody. Stay safe, stay magical, and take care.